Jesus is adventure. Endless. More than enough. My purpose to be Jesus alive. Jesus is my Jesus provider. Is forgiveness. Jesus is everything. Everything. Jesus is freedom. Freedom from insecurity. Jesus is faith. Jesus is a friend. Jesus is my strength. Jesus is my reality. Jesus is. Man, oh man, it is Palm Sunday, and I will not stop singing Graves in the Garden, I'm sure, the rest of the day. You know what I'm talking about? The rest of the day, I promise you, you're going to be going, dun, 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 dun. (laughs) I don't know what that is, but there's something about that when we worship together. And it was Palm Sunday that the crowd was gathering as Jesus would come into town riding on a donkey, and they would cry out, glory to God in the highest. They would say, Hosanna, and they would call him by all of his names, the Savior and Redeemer, Messiah, coming King. There was this glorious, triumphant entry that took place on that grand day. I learned something today, you know, as Jesus rode in on a donkey, I learned something actually this weekend on Friday. Um, I, and I'm 52 years old, and you still learn things, even when you get old like me. But uh, I didn't know this about donkeys. So you want to hear an interesting donkey fact? Anyone say yes? Why not, right? You're going to hear it anyway, so you might as well just go with it, you know? So um, every donkey, now, I don't know if this is true for every donkey, but I was told every donkey, and Google says every donkey, so it must be right. It's not in God's word, so I have to take Google for what it says here. But, but uh, my family had a chance to do a photo shoot in a, in a farm that has a lot of donkeys, and the owner is saying to my bride that, you know, every donkey has a cross pattern in their fur on their back a pattern of a cross on their back. Isn't that pretty cool? And when you stop and think about our Savior who rode into town on a donkey, just shortly before he would be, uh, before the crowd would turn on him and call for his crucifixion, and knowing that Jesus had that foreknowledge uh, of what was to come, as he rode on that donkey and would see the cross across the back of that, of that animal, there must have been a poignant uh, reminder that was just sitting there pregnant right on top of this donkey as he rode. So uh, it's fascinating. You can Google that. Just Google donkey fur. Just do an unbiased search. Donkey fur. Don't put cross because you're going to think that's why you got it. Just donkey fur and you're going to see that uh, sure enough that pattern's there. But it's just cool uh, if God did that for that purpose for us to be able to see. But uh, just fascinating those little winks that God gives us throughout time. Uh, and so another interesting fact about donkeys. You want to hear another one? Yeah, um, every donkey, uh, one of their teeth are made out of pure gold. So <laughs> that's a joke. Are you kidding me? I'm going to kill a donkey today and get me. You know, anyway, no, don't. Please don't. Yep, nope. Whoever said nope, nope. All the PETA people, I know. That's a joke. I, I'm not planning to hurt any donkeys. No donkeys were hurt first service. I don't expect any donkeys will be hurt this service as well. But the crowd cried Hosanna, celebrating Jesus as he came into town. And we celebrate him today, Palm Sunday, as we call him the Savior of the world that turns graves into gardens and bones into armies and seas into highways and beauty into ashes. We would celebrate him as not only the Messiah, but we would celebrate him as the Redeemer and as our Savior, as the one who gives us peace in the middle of hard times. Have you faced something hard right now that you've had to recognize God's peace in the middle of a storm? Have you dealing with something where you've had to call upon God for comfort? And you know him as a peace giver and a comforter. We know him as our provider and our protector. And for those that are believers in the room, Christians would say that they know him as their forgiver too. 
forgiven them of their sins. He's the promised one. God's word said that he was promised for a purpose, that he would be the sacrificial lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Jesus came with a purpose, and that purpose was to actually die on a cross so that his blood would be shed so that we would have forgiveness of sins. And as much as that's beautiful to say, whether you're a Christian or not a believer, or you're just examining the faith, from the outside, there's going to be this thing in your mind that you have to kind of play with and reconcile. And it's a big question that, that I foreshadowed on Instagram this week, uh, talking about this message and was hoping that you would come to hear it. Because the interesting question that, that, you know, that Jesus came to be the sacrificial lamb of the world to take away the sins of the world, it leads me to a question that's a really important question that I hope I'll do a good job answering today, and it's this. Why did God create a system of repentance? whereby he would have to sacrifice his one and only son. Why would God create a system of, to, to forgive mankind, the, his, the, the ones he created, the ones that messed it up in the first place, we're sinful people, God gave us free will and a choice. Why would he devise, devise a system, if he's all-knowing, that would allow or require him to do something incredibly painful by sending his only son to fix the problem? Was it some holy whoops was God up there going, oh, I didn't see that coming? Was it some divine miscalculation or oversight? Was it poor planning from God? Did God have to pull out of his holy playbook a plan B or a plan C in order to fix? Was the human experiment something that was failed, that God was trying to put into place, and then he realized, I'm going to have to correct the mess that I've made? No, none of that. But our minds have to kind of reconcile that, don't we? Well, why would God have to send Jesus? I mean, that would be a painful thing. Would you devise a plan where you would have to sacrifice your only child for the solution of that? No, indeed not. But seriously, why would he? Why would he devise a system where he would have to use his only son as payment for mortal sins? I wrestled with that over and over throughout the years, and I just felt like, you know what, I want to talk about that today. And while I'm imperfect in my communication skills, I'm going to do my best to use God's Word to really unwrap this mystery, because it is a mystery. And I don't think until we're in heaven we'll really understand the beauty of all this, because as mortals, we recognize the pain of losing someone that we love. And so no doubt that we are going to spend our time camped out on that thought. But Isaiah would tell us something about God that we would have to constantly put in our playbook as Christians, and that is Isaiah 55, 8 says, For my thoughts, this is God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, speaking to us humans, and neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. He's like, look, I, I know that sometimes my, my thought process is going to mess you up a little bit, and sometimes the things that I do aren't going to make a lot of sense to you, but I promise you they make great sense. And so this morning, I just want to encourage you, while it is something to wrestle with, and it is a mystery to, to uncover, and I think God's Word does a really great job of helping us understand that. So today, I think you'll leave with a better understanding. But you may just have to put that on your shelf in your heart to say, you know what, as much as it doesn't always make 100% sense to me why He would have to do it this way, I'm going to trust that it's a perfect plan that God has put into place. Today, I pray that you'll fully understand, or at least have a better understanding as we try to reconcile this. And as we do, the first thing that we need to understand, and I hope you brought a pencil today or pen, something to write in your journals or in your phone, but I think you're going to want to take some notes because some of this is going to require you to chew on it a little bit longer in order to really understand it. 
But it makes, begins to make more sense when we study Scripture and we have a better understanding of God's attributes. And, and that's why if you've been around long enough, you'll know that we have an essentials class that we teach. All, all of our church family, we want you to go through this. It's taught by Pastor Corey. Uh, he is an incredible gifted uh, teacher, and uh, he teaches the attributes of God. It's a class. And um, we pack a lot of information in a short, manageable time, only four weeks. We try to give you something that you can put into your schedule. But you'll learn about the attributes of God to understand more about him, because there's going to be times as you study God's Word that what he does and the way he does it is going to confuse you. And it's going to cause you in your human brain to kind of doubt and question and wonder But once you understand his attributes, you begin to see, oh, that's that attribute at play here. Because as much as God has um, this, he's this vast God, he has what are called immutable or unchanging attributes. And so some of those things are just specific to God. Some of those things are very similar to us and so we can understand them a little bit better. But, But by and large, we understand that his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. But when we can begin to understand the mystery of why God would have to send Jesus is when we understand, first of all, his holiness. And we would understand, second, God's nature. We would also need to understand and reconcile God's attributes of love and justice, which seem to be different, but they're, they work beautiful in harmony. That God is also not only, only a God of love, but he's a God of wrath and judgment. How do we reconcile those two things? They're attributes. They coexist in a beautiful way with God blows our mind to try to wrestle around them. But you couple that with what we know about God's character, that he's a patient God, and that he's a loving God, and he's a merciful God, and he's a gracious God. So he's a God of love, he's a God of wrath, he's a God of justice, but he also loves us so much, and it reconciles together. And then we have to understand our condition. So we, know we, we, we need to understand God, but then we understand who we are in the midst of all that. We are um, eternal people. And what I mean by that is our soul is eternal. Your soul is going to live eternally somewhere. Either it's going to live with God in heaven or it's going to live separated from God in a place called hell. It's just really the outcome of our soul. Regardless of what way you choose about your knowledge of God or not, you have an eternal soul that's going to live one way or the other. And so I pray that you and God would pray. God desires that we would know about his love and his mercy and accept that free gift from him. And so such a powerful and important thing. We have an eternal nature. That's man's soul. And those reconciled together will make sense, I promise you, once we see some scriptures together. So write this down in your notes. Jesus was never a plan B solution. Never a plan B. Galatians says in Galatians 4 that it was in the fullness of time that he sent Jesus. People say, why didn't he send it right when Adam and Eve messed up in the garden? Why wouldn't he just send Jesus and take care of us? Why would he have to delay Because God has a plan, and it was a plan A, and in fullness of time, God would bring Jesus. And Galatians tells us that fullness of time, Jesus would send his son to redeem the world through his sacrifice and redeem us from sin. So Jesus was, and he still is, the plan A. Jesus is no other, no other way for you and I to come to the Father except through Jesus Christ. His own words would tell us that. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He would describe that to us. But he's the only way that you and I can be forgiven of our sins through the blood of Jesus. And he's the only one that we can put our confidence in to have eternal life with God in heaven, not separated from God. So Jesus still is the only sacrifice worthy to redeem mankind from our eternal problem. So let's talk a few minutes about what makes him worthy. 
And we got to begin with the holiness. Because if you can understand God's holiness, then everything else begins to make sense. It's easy for us to understand that God is holy, right? Isn't that pretty cognitively easy to understand? And so if God's holy and sin is not, that's pretty easy to understand the two differences between that. But what's hard to wrap our minds around, because it's easy to know that God's holy and sin is not, but what's hard to wrap our minds around is the chasm, the great chasm, the expanse that separates holiness and unholiness or sinfulness. There's a huge expanse there. It's not just some fine line that you walk in life. There's a huge problem that God will talk about and we'll share about in just a moment. It is a major problem. And so I want to ask you a kind of a rhetorical question. How many sins does it take to move from being a holy person or a righteous person to being unholy and unrighteous? How many sins does it take? Sounds like that. How many licks does it take to get to the bottom of a, juicy, of a Tootsie Roll pop? All you boomer people have all know that. So the kids are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Aging myself as I stand here. How many sins does it take to move from holy to being holy to being sinful to being unholy? Well, let me ask you it this way. How much dog poop would it take to be stuck in your hair for you to feel like you need a shower? Just a little bit. It doesn't take a lot, right? I mean, like, I'm going to get a shower. My wife and I went to the zoo on our anniversary, and uh, there's this big hippo, and we're standing there next to the hippo, and it's just really cute and, you know, not really ugly, but cute in an ugly way. And it was going, rah, 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 like a laugh. And I'm like, it sounds like it's laughing. And Janice says, read the sign. And his tail began to spin in this rotating direction, and the sign says, watch out, because what's going to come out the back? I don't know how much hippopotamus poop it would take for me to feel like I got covered, but just a little bit would send me to go take a shower, right? I'm trying to be graphic, but to prove a point. With sin, it's the same way. Just a little bit of sin makes you unholy. And there within is our big problem. Because God is 100% holy, and we are not. See, for us, we like to categorize our sin, and we like to kind of uh, put our, our sin on degrees of severity. You hear the world doing it all the time, especially with, um, you know, sexual sins. You know, people will say, well, that's just like this, but yet, you know, we live in adulterous affairs, right? And we have premarital sex, and we want to just kind of say, well, one is better than the other, one's less offense than the other. In our world, we're really, really creative at justifying our sins and, and having degrees of severity that, that come along with that. And the problem is, is that Jesus wants us to know that he never sees sin like that. He sees it as just a little bit of sin still makes a huge unholy problem. And it was best personified in John chapter 8 when the Sadducees and Pharisees were trying to trip Jesus up with a, um, a real legal problem. They brought a woman to him that was caught in adultery. And according to the law, that woman would have to be stoned to death because that was what the law says. And so they wanted to make this an issue for Jesus, a moral dilemma, a spiritual dilemma based upon what the law of the land says and what Jesus sees. And so they brought to him someone who was guilty, caught in the act of adultery, and Jesus Instead of just saying, yes, kill her, because that's what she deserves, because all sin deserves death, we'll talk about in a moment. But Jesus decided to help them understand the teachable moment that sins are not just ranked by orders of severity. A sin is a sin. And that is important for us to pay attention to. And so Jesus says, listen, whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. And suddenly the accusers all departed, and he looked at the woman and said, listen, where are your accusers? And she says, they've all gone. And he says, so I want you to know you've been forgiven and go and sin no more. 
God has the power to forgive sin no matter how severe it is and no matter what the earthly consequences of that sin are. By Jesus' words, we can see that sin is not categorized in some level of human terms of ranked in severity because his thoughts are not like our thoughts and his ways are not like our ways. We want to think that our sins are seen on some balance or scale or on some graded on a curve kind of basis, or maybe we get the benefit of the doubt, but that's not how it is. We tend to view our, our sin like in boundaries of crossing the line. Like, remember I said a minute ago, we, we underestimate the chasm that separates holiness and sin. We think it's just this like line that we cross. Well, yeah, I went a little too far this time. But it's not that at all. It's not like the difference between you know, lying a little white lie versus lying to hurt somebody. I mean, we would say that there's a big line that we've crossed. Cheating on our taxes versus robbing a bank. There's a, there's a difference for me when it comes to that. When, whether, whether it's um, stealing office supplies at Christmas time because I need scotch tape and I don't want them too cheap to buy it, which is crazy. When I worked for Verizon, we had to lock the scissors and tape up around Christmas time. No kidding. Because suddenly, and batteries gone, you know, cheap people. Come on, we got to buy our own stuff. But stealing office supplies versus stealing from a bank. The fine line that people think exists between sexual sins and adultery. The list is endless, but sometimes we think that our mistakes and our failures and the things that we do wrong, if we're lucky enough, and I've felt this way before, haven't you? I know I've done some things wrong, and I'm just like, man, I'm just waiting for the other shoe to fall. I know that God's going to just hammer me for what I've done. But sometimes God gives us grace. That's the definition of mercy. Sometimes we don't always get what we deserve. Although there's the law of reaping and sowing, and I'm sure that it's connected. The things I'm experiencing in my life, I'm sure, are connected to past sins that I'm, I'm reaping what I've sowed. Yeah, back in uh, about four years ago, we had some, some people, when our, when, before the building was built here, the um, most of our valuables were stored in some containers off the back of our property here with some pretty significant locks that were absolutely easy to break into, we learned. But um, these men came and stole, like robbed us blind, took all kinds of incredibly valuable things out of our containers, and we were just like so angry. But then at the back of my mind, I thought to myself, I'd hate to be those guys stealing from a church. Like, as you know, everything that goes wrong, whether they stub their toe or have their arm severed in an elevator accident, they're going to go, it's because they stole from that darn church. And they're, you know, it, it, can you just imagine? I mean, how are you going to escape that? You know, I mean, everything you do wrong is because I stole from that darn church, you know. We tend to think that the things that are happening in our lives are connected. And we're grateful when God somehow gives us mercy and grace and we don't have to suffer the consequences in a human way. But the reality is, is our sins are still creating a major debt problem eternally. Our sins are not just a temporary problem. I want you to write this down and put it on the screen. The guilt and penalty of our sin is not simply a temporary problem. It's an eternal problem. It's not just, man, did I, did I kind of, did the consequences that happened on earth, that wasn't too bad. I actually, I actually kind of got through that when I'm still here. <sighs> How foolish it is to think that the sins of what, on this earth are only affecting the earth and the time that we have as mortals here. Your guilt and penalty of sin is not, a simply a temp, a, not simply a temporary problem. It is an eternal problem. And the sins in your life that you fail to conquer eventually will conquer you from an eternity standpoint. 
sin is something that we have to deal with. Isn't it strange that we think somehow over time, time will diminish the payment or the price of our sin? Write this down somewhere in your notes. There is no amount of human effort and there's no amount of time that can undo your sin. There's nothing you can do to be good enough. You can't pray enough. You can't uh, do good things for people enough. There's nothing that you can do to fix your sin problem because of works that you're doing yourself. That's a major problem. There's no amount of human effort or time, just because a lot of time has passed, that can deal with your sin. The truth is when we sin, we break fellowship with God. That's the problem because he's holy and sin is not. He's a pure essence of holiness and sin is the complete polar opposite of holiness. Unrighteousness and unholiness, they cannot be reconciled with righteousness and holiness. They're polar opposites. They repel each other. And so when we sin, God can't be in fellowship with us because he is all pure holy. And we at that point now, because we've had just a little bit of sin, are now separated from God. It's a real problem. Do you see that? Our sin, simply put, breaks our fellowship with God. And sadly, the consequences of those sins, God's word tells us that all sin requires death as the payment of that. Not just simply an earthly death, there's an eternal death like I described. We're all going to spend eternity somewhere with God in the presence of God, with eternal life, or we're going to spend it with eternal death separated from God in a place called hell. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, so many different things Paul says we'll look at real quick. When Adam sinned, this is verse 12 of chapter 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. And Adam's sin, here it is, it brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. Well, then he would go on to say, and, and um, another part of Romans, for everyone, for all of ha- for all have, or everyone has sinned, and we've fallen short of God's glorious standard. He's saying that this problem that Adam had it, it leads all the way through to us. See, while we can all avoid some sin in life, none of us can avoid all sin in life. It's important for us to realize that that sin is creating a chasm, a separation between us and God. And your earthly sin creates a huge eternal problem because it breaks God's law. Yes, it breaks his heart, but it breaks his law. And when you break God's law, his attributes of being a God of justice and judgment and wrath are fully on display when we violate his law. And so as much as he loves you, and as much as he has mercy and grace for you, he must punish sin. It would violate God's holiness. It would violate his innate sense of justice and judgment and wrath if he didn't punish sin. If he overlooked the sin of the world, it would make our holy God unjust. See the problem? You see the problem? Death is not just... God's um, consequence, it is a just consequence. It's not, it's not just something God just arbitrarily decided. It's that he has to do that because he is holy and he is God 
And when the law is broken, there must be justice rendered. So what's that justice? Well, Romans 6.23, Paul tells us the wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. This wasn't a new concept because the early church was still in practice of animal sacrifices. Imagine how graphic that would have been back in the Old Testament and going into the New Testament. That God would give the earth a temporary, imperfect model of what was to come through Christ that would be the perfect model, the eternal model. But God would take a, a mortal animal... And he would sacrifice it, that the individual would need to take the spotless, perfect, blemish-free animal, something that would be highly valuable to their family, something in their own economy. They would have to give it up freely, and it would have to be sacrificed on an altar. The whole family would be a part of this ordeal. And that blood that was shed from that animal would cover and atone their sins for that season. It was imperfect because it was not a once-for-all solution. It had to be done over and over and over again annually, and sometimes even more frequently than that, depending on what was going on. And so the world would understand, especially as Paul would write, that there is a wage for sin and it's death. And so here's the problem that they had to then and we still have today. Their wages of sin is death. And you can pay that price yourself, or you can let somebody else pay it for you. But who would do that? Who would pay a price to something that you did? Well, Jesus would. Your sin problem, you can pay it yourself, or you can let someone else. But the heinous visual of watching this horrific animal sacrifice must have left graphic, terrible impression upon the kids and the family that were there. How sad it was this animal had to suffer the price for what you have done. Sin has always carried a penalty of death. And how dare we make light of what brings down the wrath of God and requires shedding of blood? How much sin does it take to move from holy to unholy? All have sinned. Any sin. God sees them the same. We break the law of God. There must be payment for that law. So the bottom line is, you and I are sinners, worthy of a spiritual death. Isn't that encouraging? And again, you can pay it yourself or someone else can do it. And all throughout history, we've seen how that has been repeated through Abraham and Moses, the children of Israel. A life must be given for the penalty of sin to be paid. So now I think you can begin to see that This is not just a line we cross when we sin. To God, when you sin, it's like falling off a cliff that you're helpless to save yourself from. It's a beautiful mystery of God, and I kind of visualize this, and I know that the metaphor breaks down, but as we sin and we fall off that proverbial cliff, not just cross the line, but we're like, we're like helplessly falling off a cliff. We, we grasp onto that branch that we all think is there off of every cliff that we can hold onto. And we deserve judgment, but God in his love peers over the edge and has great compassion on you and knows that in his justice and, and, and in his wrath and in his judgment that we have a, a sin uh, we, we have to pay the price. 
We're helpless as he stands there peering over the chasm. He still extends love to you and I so that we don't have to suffer that eternal problem. That's where his love and his nature comes in. Your sin's not just some mortal behavior with mortal consequences. Your sin carries eternal consequences to your immortal soul. And so God reaches across. And Paul would tell us in Romans 6.23, we read the full verse now, that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is a gift, his eternal life through who? Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who died on the cross for our sins. There's no amount of sheep that can save you from your sins eternally, permanently and lasting. There's no amount of human effort or time that can erase your sins permanently and eternally. Only a sacrifice capable of atoning sin for an eternity would work. A once and for all sacrifice. Your eternal problem had to be solved by an immortal God. This is the answer to the question. A mortal life, an animal death, cannot solve your eternal problem in the new covenant because God has a perfect solution for you now. We don't sacrifice animals anymore because God has sent the perfect sacrifice, and that is Jesus Christ. An immortal, perfect, eternal God lays his life down, his only son's life down, for the redemption of sin of mankind. You see, Jesus is and was and still is the plan A of salvation. He's the only way it can be done. Jesus Christ had to die if man was going to be redeemed for sins eternally. We were hopeless, and we are hopeless. If you don't have a relationship with God, you're still in that hopeless state, and you're grabbing onto that branch off this chasm And God with love has brought you here today to hear a message, either online or in person, to try to communicate to you his love and that even though he's a God of justice, there is a way for you to avoid that justice by placing your faith and trust in him. Listen to what Paul would write to us about our helpless helpless situation. He says, when we were utterly helpless, we're just holding on for dear life between heaven and hell suspended with our eternity. When we were utterly helpless... Christ came just at the right time, that appointed time, not a plan B, just at the right time. And what did he do? He died for our sins. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. You see, Jesus had to die because he was the only one that could pay the price, the eternal price, the eternal penalty for the sins of mankind. There's nothing you and I can do to earn his forgiveness, and there's nothing that you and I can do to avoid his punishment, not here on earth, not in our own strength, but in God's grace and in God's love, he gave us a way to accept Jesus Christ what, mercy, what wonderful mercy and grace that God has given us to be able to redeem us this way. His love, His mercy, His grace can save you and restore you. A couple more verses to help you understand what God did for you. In 1 John chapter 4, it says, God showed how much He loved us. 
by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And this is real love, he says. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And that he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away the sins of the earth. A permanent sacrifice, an eternal solution. Romans chapter 5, Paul would say, For the sin of one man, Adam, going back to Adam and Eve, caused, the de- caused death to rule over many, which is us. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, which we understand for all of sin and fall short of glory of God. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone who receives it. So how do you receive this new life from God? How do we get that? Well, first of all, do you want to spend eternity paying for your sin in a place called hell? No, indeed not. Is there a solution? God says there is through Jesus Christ. So how do we reconcile that? I grew up in a church in a culture of, uh, of a denominational thought that would say that if you just pray this prayer, then you're saved. And I think the root of that was not intended to be misleading, but I think that there was a watering down of a prayer into a recipe that if you would just say these words and repeat these words, and if you would raise your hand or walk the aisle after you said this, then you were saved. But I'm here to tell you that I don't think that's the case. It's not so simply some prayer that you pray. It's, in fact, a little harder than that. It is a free gift of salvation. There's nothing you can do to earn it. But it's more of not a prayer that you pray, but as much as it is a grand exchange of your life. You see, Jesus laid down his life to give you a new life. And in order for you to receive that new life from him, you need to lay your life down to him. That's what's supposed to happen in that prayer, is that you would acknowledge that you believe that Jesus is God's son and that he was the perfect sacrifice that came to be the, 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 the Messiah, to be the savior of the world, and that by putting your faith and trust in him, he'll forgive you of your sins and he'll be the leader of your life. So some people say he's your Lord and savior. Others would say, I, I like this better. He's my forgiver and my leader because that's really the sequence of what he's done in my life. He's forgiven me of my sins eternally. Now I'm still going to mess up, but I still need to go confess those things to him so I can have a right standing with God on a regular basis. I pray privately to God. I pray through Jesus's blood and I say, Father, forgive me for what I've done. And, and God is faithful to forgive me. And so as I, as I navigate this, it's, it's a forgiver side of it, but I also need God to lead my life because I want to make good choices. I want to live with fewer regrets. There's going to be complicated things that I need to face in life, and I need to know that I have a leader who I can follow and, and that he can guide me through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the grand exchange. And I, and I, and I pray that you see this death weaved into it, which makes more sense of why Jesus had to die. Is that what, when you accept Christ, you're basically saying, Father... I believe, you're, I believe Jesus is your son. I believe that with everything in me. And I want to place my faith and trust in him and him alone because he says he's the only way to salvation. And I want to claim the blood of Jesus to forgive me of my sins so that I can have my eternal problems solved. And I want you to be the leader of my life. And in order to do that, it's not just some prayer that I said, 
but I'm going to take my life and lay it down and give it over to him, being crucified with Christ so that I can take this new life upon myself. Jesus would explain it in this way, Matthew chapter 16. See if you understand what he's trying to communicate, how I'm trying to articulate it today. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone of you wants to be my follower, well, you must give up your own way. You see that death, that surrender of life? And take up your cross, which was a method of execution, right? I mean, this is what he was telling them, is that there's a death associated here. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own life and take up your cross and follow me. Verse 25, if you try to hang on to your life, well, you'll just lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, well, you'll save it. And what does it benefit you if you gain the whole world in this mortal world that will perish? but lose your own soul, which is eternal. I'm paraphrasing to help you understand. Is anything worth more than your eternal soul? Indeed not. Jesus knew this, and he understands the bigger picture. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But he's making this so clear for us to understand. It's not just some prayer that you pray. It is a life that you surrender. And when you die to yourself and surrender your life to him, he gives you this brand new life and a home eternal in the heavens, and forgiveness of sins. We must die and surrender our current life to him. I wonder if you've done that. I pray that you have. Maybe you grew up in a world where you just said a prayer, and and you felt like that was enough. But when you compare your walk with the people around you, and there's people that you encounter that you know, man, are just on fire for the Lord. There's something inside of them that just seems to be different than what you have. Maybe what happened to you is that you prayed a prayer and didn't surrender your life. And I want to encourage you today that you can still do that. You can still surrender your life. I prayed a prayer when I was 13, but I surrendered my life when I was 18. There was a difference for me, and I knew it clearly. And when you surrender your life to God, you immediately have your life replaced with the Holy Spirit's life that comes inside of you. That's what gives you this sense and peace and understanding that God's in control. There's a new barometer inside you, the Holy Spirit helping guide you away from sin and to convict your heart when you cross those lines or fall off that chasm to help you navigate the decisions you have to make. And no matter how heinous the things have done that you've done in your life or no matter how petty they've been, God can forgive you of your sins. I know that there's times that you may have when looking back in your life as a child or in college or as a young adult where you've just done things that have crippled you in your heart because you know the heinous nastiness that you got yourself tied up into. But man, God can totally forgive you of that. And today you can be washed white as snow. And it's a matter of confessing your sins to him and allowing him to forgive you. But before you can claim that and before you can ask him to forgive you, he must be your Lord. You must surrender your life to him, and then you have all the benefits of being one of his children. You can crawl up on the lap of God in a proverbial way. You simply sit on his lap in your prayer time and say, Father, I have totally screwed this up. I've sinned against you, whether it was a sin that happened 20 years ago, whether it's something that you currently have done today. No matter how bad or how hard it is, you simply confess that to him. And there's something beautiful that happens. And First John tells us about it. John tells us that if we confess our sins, this is my last scripture for you today, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 
That confession word is a Greek word called metanoia. Metanoia means that I've changed my heart, and now because of that, I'm going to change my direction. It's a change of heart which requires a change of direction. When we come to God to ask for forgiveness of sins, it's with the intention of never doing that sin again. Many of us have blurred the lines of forgiveness, thinking it's just kind of crossing a line, and it's kind of like one of those cute things that God must understand I struggle here in this area. I don't think he does. Dare we make light of the thing that has to bring down the wrath of God? Whatever it is that you're struggling, even currently or in the past, confess it, repent from it, have a change of heart and remorse that will result in a change of direction. Jesus was sent to this earth to redeem mankind through his death and his resurrection. It wasn't poor planning. It wasn't a failed experiment. Jesus' atoning work was a plan A, and he did it masterfully, and he carried it out according to prophecy. Friday night, we'll be together, and we'll celebrate. Well, celebrate's probably the wrong word. We'll remember with communion and God's word of what the sacrifice he made for us as he died on the cross. And then we'll come back together Sunday, and we'll tear this place up singing about his glory and his resurrection. Because it's through his death and his resurrection that proves he was who he says he was and had the authority to solve an eternal problem. And that's the forgiveness of sins. Oh, I wonder if you've done that. If you haven't or you're unsure, I want to encourage you to do one of two things. If you're watching online, I want you to send a text. Text the word surrender to 97000. And we want to talk to you about how you can be sure that you've made Jesus your Lord. Not just pray to prayer, but that you've surrendered your life. And if you're here today and you want to know more information about that, Pastor Corey and I will be down in the front right after service. We'd love to talk to you about that. If this is inconvenient because you've got a place to be today, send me a text message. Go to the website. Uh, find any contact number. Get a hold of me through them. Uh, my administrative assistant will get you connected with me. I want to make sure that you know this is too big of something to just go, I think I get it. You want to know for sure what you're saying yes to Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the opportunity, Father, to be able to unpack your word. It's a tough topic because we deal with our sin, which we all deal with. Our sins, Lord, are, are, are many, and today your words helped us realize that just a little bit of sin makes us really, really unholy. But thank you. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to allow us to reconcile with you. He was your plan A. And I bet we're going to understand that even more as the years progress and that we will eventually spend eternity with you. We'll be able to see with even greater clarity of how beautiful that was. As painful as it was, it was a beautiful thing, a masterful plan. And for all those that call upon you as their Lord and Savior, as a child of God, we recognize that it was the biggest thing that we could ever possibly receive. What a free gift. Exchanging our life for it was a small token compared to what it is that we receive. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Happy Palm Sunday. God bless you. 